Well, we've been promising uh, our next guest in the show for the last few weeks. We, we've designated him as our financial consultant and advisor. And we want to talk about, I think, the big short and the whole issue of what happened there in 2008, the meltdown, et cetera. And we want to just spend a few minutes on that. To do that, I say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Bob Dunham. Hi, and thanks for having me back. Where, where did we leave? We left off, I think, last time talking about people should calculate their mortgage, uh, mortgage interest over the lifetime of a loan, which is probably still something we should refer people to do. <laughs> you know, you want to be involved in your in in your investment, and what happens with most people is they're not involved, and this is why things like this happen because they don't pay that much attention. They say, "Oh, I got a great rate," or "I got oh, I'm happy with what I'm paying right now," and then they don't pay any more attention to it after that, and then it goes away. It is amazing how important that is to people's lives and how they they don't spend a lot of time on it. I think that's sadly often the case in life, but. Um, Let's talk about The Big Short. I don't think you haven't had a chance to see the movie yet, but it's up for the Oscar, I guess, this coming weekend. I hope it draws people to go see this film. I, you know, and I do too because it'll, it's, a, it's an awareness film more than anything else. Yes, it's a good movie. Yes, it has some great acting. Yes, it has all the things that you look for in a, in, in, in a theatrical event that's going to cost you 12 bucks to go see. But the real underlying story is even more important that I hope doesn't get glossed over. And when you say that underlying story, meaning the fact that the movie focuses on individuals that bet against Wall Street, knowing that you know these loans were, were crap and it was all going to collapse. But Wall Street itself knew that. And Wall Street made a giant bet against the economy and I think just figured it, when it goes to hell, it doesn't matter where we got our bets covered. Well, every year you always see things like the lemming going off, the, you know, the <laughs> lemming going off the cliff. And we just keep following that, clemming off the cliff, lemming off the cliff. And now you're starting to see that there are a few people out there that are kind of bright and go, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Wait a minute, my gardener just got a $600,000 home. <laughs> really? How could my gardener afford a $600,000 home? I want him to have a home. I don't want him to have a mansion because I don't know that he can afford a mansion. I've been reading Matt Taibbi and Michael Lewis both because they both talk about this topic. But but I guess there was a lot of gamesmanship going on on the FICO scores and how they knew that if you got, say, a, a someone who was in this country recently and just immigrated here from El Salvador, he doesn't have much of a cr credit record. So his credit record looks falsely elevated. It looks better than it ought to. And they, they played into that by going to people that were like recent immigrants and selling them $600,000 homes. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because that is the American dream. You know, come to America, get a good job, buy a home, raise a family. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's the whole thing. That's why we unfortunately have immigrants that are dying trying to get to other countries, not only including ours, but countries that give give them freedom and, and hopefully give them the things that they want. But they're misled. They're they're being told that this will work and that'll work, and then they and then the people that are doing it are doing it based on government subsidies. Well, yeah, mortgage brokers were selling these poor people loans that knowing that they'd never be able to pay them once they ballooned up. They were given zero interest to begin with. But the really horrible part about it is they were driven to do so by the higher-ups. The banks were saying, you deliver all those you can to us. And that people supposedly doing the due diligence at these institutions were basically lean on to say, look, grant the loan. A lot of that had to do with the way that the interest rates were at the time. Interest rates were down the toilet, meaning that there was free money. You could borrow the money cheap. You put it out and, and convince people that they needed to pay. You could borrow the money from the Fed at a, at a quarter of a point and put it out to the public at 9% and tell them that they're getting the deal of a lifetime because they'd never qualify for a loan at 9% anywhere else ever, and they get them to sign up for it. 
knowing the loan wasn't any good in the first place. Yeah. And, and this whole thing about, you know, AIG, these credit default swaps to insure these institutions that if it went bad, they'd be covered. They had such massive bets that it's argued by Taibbi and others that Joe Cassano, I guess, is the guy that was heading that division of AIG. I think they just figured, we don't care. If the economy implodes, we're not going to be paying that off anyway because it's going to be such a catastrophe, the government's going to have to step in. And he argues that they probably cynically thought exactly like that. And it's probably very true because somebody has to cover the cost someplace. There has to be accountability at some level, whether it be the individuals, which are all going to claim that they didn't know it, they thought they were doing the right thing and they don't have any money to pay for it. Ultimately, it rolls back to the government because the government does what? They insure mortgages. They have Fannie Mae. They have uh, FHA. They have all the different entities that guarantee these mortgages. So what these guys were doing was they were wrapping up mortgages in big bundles and selling it back to the government and saying, hey, look at this. The, all the, with all the tranches, meaning all the different levels involved, we have an average credit rating of 660, 670, 700, right, right. whatever but, number is. But they so gamed that because they really knew after the, the, what they were repackaging to make look like they were AAA rated were actually, were actually just crap. Absolutely. And when a big bank like Bank of America or, or J.P. Morgan Chase uh, has to pay a, a $1.7 billion with a B fine, and say we're not guilty, we're not, we're not uh, innocent. We're just, you know, this is how to solve the problem. There's a problem. Okay, <laughs> I, when was the last time you opened your wallet and gave five hundred dollars because you may or may not have done something <laughs> right or wrong? Well, the thing is, if I was engaged in an enterprise that was making me tens of thousands, I'd be totally okay with that. Well, they build that all into their into their into their algorithms anyway. I mean, they're building all those things in there. They're saying, "Look, we're going to sell this amount of it. If we get in trouble, we might have to give back this amount of it. How much are we going to make?" I mean, it's a, it's a game. Whatever they're paying in fines is a fraction of what they made. Exactly, and this all this is is adult Candyland. I mean, all they're doing <laughs> is taking games that we played as kids reinventing and redoing the rules and saying, okay, here's how we're going to play now. All right, we should talk about stuff at greater length. We don't have the time today, Bob. But before you go, I want to ask you about, because uh, you, you, you make money on stocks. It's what you do. You you follow the market and, and are able to profit from that. But a lot of people have been criticizing Wall Street for decades. And recently, Hillary Clinton has done so about the tyranny of quarterly capitalism that all Wall Street seems to care about is what you made last quarter. Yeah, and, it, and that's true. And Wall Street's right, and the, and the political elite are, are to a certain degree wrong. Why? All you're doing on Wall Street is betting on the future earnings of a company. It's gambling. You're betting <laughs> on the future earnings of a company. Nothing else matters. If a technology company is doing well you and you want to buy into those profits, you buy the stock, the stock goes up. If you buy into a company whose, whose uh, industry is fading into the sunset and you still think there's money in there and you put money into it and you lose, too bad. You're buying into the future earnings of a company. And that's the thing that most people don't understand. It really is a giant casino. Nobody cares about what happened five years ago. IBM 20 years ago was a stellar stock. And everybody loved IBM. It's struggling today. How do you live on what happened 20 years ago? You can't. You got to move on. You got to get to the next quarter. I understand that. You're betting on the future earnings of a corporation. Well, I think Matt Taibbi... Uh, I don't know who he's quoting on this, but he said that investment 
is gambling with the odds in your favor. <laughs> that was a great summary. If you do enough research, that could be true. There's a lot of uh, hedge fund guys that would like you to believe that's true. Uh -huh. I don't know that they do the homework, but if you do your homework and you approach things with the right aspect, you can do okay. You can do better than you can do at the bank. Well, Bob, thanks for joining us and updating us. I hope that you'll come back on in the future, whether we're on internet only or on terrestrial radio, as the case may be. And we'll talk more about this stuff because this stuff ain't going away. It's never going to go away. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about some uh, more uplifting stuff. We should have probably put at the top of the show as our good news item the fact that Barack Obama is going to Cuba next month. Not only that, for the first time in 50 years, an American corporation is cutting a deal to put a manufacturing plant on that island. They're evidently going to build tractors, which will be used in Cuba. Mini tractors, I understand. And commercial air traffic is moving closer and closer to being fully restored. Unfortunately, those flights will be operated by U.S. airlines only because there are many outstanding judgments against the Cuban government in U.S. courts. This is on behalf of plaintiffs who lost property when Cuba nationalized assets, so Cuban planes could be seized if they land on American soil. Another sign that things are getting better is the news that uh, last week Cuba returned an inert U.S. Hellfire missile that was shipped to the communist-ruled island by mistake after a NATO training exercise in Spain. This evidently relieved U.S. officials who feared the regime might sell the secret technology. Another cinematic effort which I was uh, turned on to was The Imitation Game, a movie from two years ago, I guess, about Alan Turing. To quote from a piece in the Washington Post from last year, Freeman Dyson, 91, the famed physicist, author, and oracle of human destiny, is holding forth after tea time one February afternoon in the common room of the Institute for Advanced Study. Let me tell you the story of how I discovered Turing, which was in 1941. He says, I was just browsing in the library in Cambridge. I hit that 1936 paper. I never heard of this guy Turing, but I saw that paper and immediately I said, this is something absolutely great. Computable numbers. That was something that was obviously great. Pause, then with a laugh. But it never occurred to me that it would have any practical importance. Noted Joel Achenbach in the post, oh yes, on computable numbers with an application to the Entscheidung's problem had practical importance. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. For it was arguably the founding document of the computer age. Turing did as much as anyone to create the digital revolution that continues to erupt around us. Noted the post, Turing has been of great renown among computer scientists for generations, but in recent years his stature as a cultural icon has steadily grown, and now millions of people know about him because of the Oscar-nominated movie, the Imitation Game. The movie focuses in on the attempts to break the German Enigma code during World War II, which Turing had a major role in. But the Post notes that in reality, Turing's greatest breakthrough wasn't mechanical, but theoretical, that 1936 paper that Freeman Dyson was talking about. Amid the paper's thicket of equations and mathematical theories lay a powerful idea, that it would be possible to build a machine that can compute anything that a human can compute. Turing was addressing a question of logic, but in the process, he clearly described a real machine that someone could build, one that would use zeros and ones for computations. Said Dyson, he invented the idea of software. It's software that's really the important invention. We had computers before, they were mechanical. 
What we never had before was software. That's the essential discontinuity, that a machine could actually decide what to do by itself. Interesting article, interesting movie. And for more from Freeman Dyson, which we highly recommend, we suggest you go to our show number 334 from November 6th of 2008, where we spent basically the whole hour speaking with that great thinker, Freeman Dyson. All right, and in closing, let's do as promised on last week's show, that memorable bit from Bob and Ray. Uh, This is a surprise time for me because I haven't had an opportunity to meet and talk with our next guest. Well, would you sit there now and, and tell us your name, please? Harlow P. Whitcomb. And where are you from? From Glens Falls. New York. New York. And what do you do? I am the president and recording secretary. Secretary. Of uh, the S T O A. What does that stand for? Slow talkers of America. We believe in speaking slowly. In forming your words, thoughts, our ideas <laughs> and opinions clearly before speaking, we speak. We are here in New York City. In the city of New York, (laughs) attending a convention, our annual convention, membership convention, convention, all of our members, all 200 members. And 50 members. Seven members members are here speaking slowly slowly. so that you'll never be misunderstood. As opposed to the members of the F. T-O-A. T-O-A. O-A. The fast talkers of America. Talkers of America. Of America. America. Our credo is to speak slowly. Goes something like, like this. this. Would you lower the curtain, please? We give you a nervous wreck. 
All right, we are so out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. Unforgettable That's what you are Unforgettable Though near or far Like a song of love That clings to me How the thought of you does things to me Never before Has someone been more Unforgettable In every way And forevermore That's how you stay That's how